title of the sermon today is Be Holy. It is important that you have a right definition of holiness. And when we think about holiness, there is a general tendency to think holiness and righteousness are the same thing. My desire is for you to have a very clear conception of the difference between them. The most useful way I can think of to help you to understand the difference between them is to think about the way in which man is made as the image of God. We must remember that man, as the image of God, is rational. Rationality is the image of God. What's rationality? It's thinking in a manner that is structured by the laws of logic. We think propositions. We think in terms of the content of declarative sentences. And so when we think in terms of words that are revealed, the words that are revealed align with the structure that we have been made. We as thinkers, we think in propositions. What that means is, we think things in terms of a subject, some thing, some, some noun that we're talking about. And we think things about those nouns. The table is brown. The table is rectangular. The table is three feet tall. These are all things we predicate about that noun. So we attach information to subjects that we're thinking about. And as we have the fullness of that information about the subject, we have a definition. Now, a definition can be a complete definition or it can be a definition that's sufficient to differentiate something from something else. So will we ever have a full definition of God? No. Because there's an infinite number of truths that can be said about God. But can you have a sufficient definition of God to differentiate Him from all other things? Yes. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And nothing else is. Now, we think in terms of subjects and we say things about them. That is rationality. We think in that structure. All thought is in that structure. And so, when we think, we have thought content. And properly formed content is knowledge. And as thinkers, we cannot avoid purpose. And properly formed purpose is holiness. And as thinkers, we make choices. And properly formed choices are righteousness. So, when we think about content, information, we are renewed after the image of Christ in knowledge. We are renewed after Christ, in terms of His image, in purpose. In holiness. And we are renewed after the image of Christ in choice, in righteousness. So what you think controls what your goals are, controls what your choices are. And really those are all part of thought. But when we talk about being holy, the commandment is principally to set your objective on the glory of God. And then to make sure that you avoid those things that would prevent you from maintaining that objective. 
And so holiness, first, principally, is about being focused on the glory of God. And secondly, on being focused on relationship and activity that advances the glory of God. So the people that you are friends with either draw you into holiness or unholiness. And so that is why often you will see when God is rebuking Israel for not being holy, he on the other side says instead they've profaned themselves in harlotries. As opposed to a proper relationship in marriage, there is improper relationship with harlot. And so what we are called to do is to be faithful in our relationship to God and to be faithful in relationship to the people of God so that we are a holy people, set apart, distinct from the world, distinct from unholy institutions, and holy, having our affections, our desires, our goals, our relationships with the people of God. And so we think about holiness, and often we think about the things that cause us to be unholy and stuff we should do to be holy. But principally, holiness is about the goal, being set apart to the glory of God, and about relationship with those who will work with you for that. Setting yourself, focusing yourself, being zealous for the glory of God. Now, the office of priesthood is given for the purpose of helping to manifest the work of holiness. The office of prophet is meant to show us knowledge or wisdom. The office of king is to help us to see righteousness or justice manifested. So when we think about holiness, does it surprise you at all that the Corinthian letters, letters about how the church is the temple of God, does it surprise you at all that Paul would say in this letter, be holy. The theme of these letters is about the work of God to make the church the temple of God in the New Covenant era and to give us strength to maintain that work, to maintain focus. So, let us go and look further now. Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you, or our mouth is open, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as the children, you also be open. Last time we talked about this some, but this chunk, 1 Corinthians 6.11 through chapter 7, is an excellent laying out of this call to priestliness. And we have a masterly display, a master class of priestliness here in communication by Paul. He says, O Corinthians, we have opened our mouths. Our mouths are open. Our heart is wide open. The idea here is, he is saying, I have spoken plainly to you. And I have shown you the contents of my mind. What I actually think is what I have actually said. And I need you to believe that I mean what I say. And I am revealing to you what I actually think in the hopes that by my transparency, you will believe that you can be transparent with me. He is saying, 
You're not restricted by us. We're not doing anything that makes it so you can't talk to us. I'm being plain and open. But you are restricted by your own affections. The reason you will not speak plainly with us, Corinthians, is because your heart is set elsewhere. This whole letter, Paul is saying, you have given your affections to men who are not worthy of your affections. Officers that you ought not to have honored. And you should be honoring the lawful officers, those who have shown love for you, those who have shown sincerity, rather than the super apostles who have shown hypocrisy and falsehood. Their affections restricted them. Have you ever yourself had thoughts that you did not feel confident that you could reveal to someone else? A person that you were talking to and you did not want to tell them what you were really thinking. The reason we do not want to tell people things is because we do not trust them to behave in a way that we think is appropriate. We think that if we tell them what we really think, they will react improperly. They will be disorderly. Perhaps they will be abusive. Perhaps they will slander us. Perhaps they will use it to harm us in other ways and to seek to twist our words. And so, with those whom we do not feel safe with, we restrain our communications. We become tactical in our manner of speech. We begin to maneuver to seek to determine how can we deal with people such as this so that when we talk to them, our words will not become a dagger against us. But Paul is saying, our behavior has been such that we have put ourselves at risk to you. We say plainly what we mean, even though there are people who are twisting our words. The Apostle Paul is being abused. The super apostles are taking everything he says and finding ways to try to make it look evil. They want to make him look bad. And so the more he communicates, the more things they have to grab hold of. The more you talk, the more you can grab snippets. The, the more you talk, the more your enemies can grab snippets and take them out of context and make them sound bad. Preachers are called to be bold. They are called to have all sorts of sound bites that their enemies can twist against them. Oh, how easy it would be to listen to but a few of my sermons and make me sound like a monster. Any preacher worth his salt is going to say lots of things that will sound awful out of context. And he has to be willing to do that. To be willing to suffer thorns and thistles and strife and the arrows of enemies and to rely upon God to give victory. And so Paul is saying, look, I am putting myself at risk. I am being open to you. I am showing you what I really think. We are showing you what we really think. The apostolic band. And so your restraint is not caused by us. Your restraint is caused because you love things you ought not to love. And you hate things you ought not to hate. And so the affections of a Christian are very important to train. What we value is controlled by what we think. And so we should be careful to cultivate our thoughts that we might cultivate our affections. When we find ourselves not properly valuing things, we need to find out why. And what we do is we study the law, we study the law, we meditate on Proverbs, we meditate on the things that instruct us in the way that we should go, and we find what lies we are believing. And as a rake through sand, we seek to find the pebbles, we find the things that should not be there, 
and we try to remove them. The Word of God is useful as a sieve to help us to strain out the things that shouldn't be there. It helps us to test our thoughts. We should be careful if we find that the Word of God plainly says something different from what we think, to not think that we have reasoned rightly, but instead to judge what we think and to see that God is wiser than we, and to use His Word as a test against our thoughts. We should examine it, see do we understand the Word properly, and if we think the Word of God is wrong in some way, we should find the point at which we are wrong so that we see why our reasoning has gone wrong. The Word of God is true, and every man a liar. And if you find that you think that your system in your head is different from the system revealed in the Word, you're the one that's wrong, I promise. Spend some time studying. So our affections are controlled by what we think, and what we think about individuals. And that is why the Ninth Commandment gives us great care about how we deal with our own reputation and others' reputation. If you want to study that, the Ninth Commandment in the Larger Catechism is an incredible, glorious laying out of how to deal with reputation and conflict. The Larger Catechism's teaching there wonderfully draws together many teachings. Reputation management is key to making sure that relationships are maintained. And not accusing wrongly and not failing to accuse where accusing is necessary is very important to maintaining right relationship, to maintaining holiness. The Ninth Commandment is key to holiness because it teaches us about conflict resolution, the duty to accuse, the duty to not accuse, the duty to speak truth, the duty to remain silent. If you are in a position of leadership, if you are in a position of strength, one of the things that you can do in order to encourage those under your authority to speak plainly with you is to start by speaking first. You take the risk of revealing what you think and you ask them to return the favor. Verse 13, Now in return for the same, I speak so as to children, you also be open. The idea is he's speaking to those who are children. These are his children in the sense that he has evangelized to them and planted that church. And so, spiritually, not in the sense that he powerfully regenerated them, but he's the one who came to them as an evangelist. In rank, they are of lower position. And so, they are children in that sense. And in maturity, in the faith, they are children in comparison to his position as a father. And so, in all of those senses, they are children. And so, he gives to us an example. When you are in a position of authority... How do you build relationship with those that are under your authority? Transparency, openness, plainness. One of the reasons that Puritanism is able to succeed is because of plain preaching. Puritanism is known, one, for not being theatric, and two, for not being grandiose. As a result, the preacher, though he speak hard things, does not appear to be someone who is disconnected from his people, even the lowest stations. Speaking openly, with candor, straightforwardness, transparency, plainness of speech, clarity about intentions and concerns, this is a Protestant virtue. 
I have reminded you often and remind you again that cultures that are not Protestant have often found Protestants to be disturbing. Why do they find Protestants to be disturbing? Because when Protestant businessmen go into other cultures, they are far more straightforward and plain than the people they are used to dealing with. And it is unnerving. The revealing of intentions with a nakedness is something that is not common in cultures of human origin. Christian culture, Calvinistic culture, exemplified in the Dutch, Northern Germans, British, Scots, Swiss, and Americans. Historically, businessmen from those places have been known to be straightforward and to try to get to business quickly rather than wasting time on enormous elaborate rituals of communication. Straightforward business, straightforward church work, straightforward political discussion and dealings reduces manipulation. It makes it less about the relational and the time investment and makes it more about the proposition being presented to the mind. This comes from the view of the primacy of the intellect and of truth. One of the ways that Protestant culture respects the rationality of persons is to seek to plainly expose purposes and goals and to see if there is a way to work together, to have some sort of accomplishment of a mutual task, to reach agreement about the subject matter, rather than making people subservient entirely to human relation. Cultures that worship the state seek to minimize the thought content involved in dealings and negotiations and to maximize the sense of guilt and responsibility based upon relationship. If relationship is primary, if hierarchy is the principal thing, if duty to authority that is human is the primary, primary thing, then what matters is ritual and relation and station. Christianity cares about stations. It cares about relationships, but they are governed by the truth. So Paul, in giving this Protestant virtue, this Christian virtue, this Jewish virtue, this virtue from the Old and New Testaments, he is being plain. Nothing about his plainness in behavior prevents the Corinthians from explaining the situation plainly back. Their own misplaced affections prevent them from being open back. Now, fathers, husbands, I would encourage you to take this tactic, not as a manipulation tactic, but as a sincere act of integrity. If you want to lead your wife, tell her plainly what you want. Now here's the thing. The funny thing is, this is actually not the principal exhortation that needs to be given. Generally, men are relatively straightforward about what they want. The problem is that women do not believe the simplicity of the man's desires to be the actual thing. Now, it is important for relationship that both there be straightforwardness by the leader and that the follower believe the leader to be straightforward. If the follower does not believe the leader to be straightforward, the follower will believe there is something else, some manipulation being done. It is the temptation tendency of the woman who is physically less strong 
to use manipulation in the relationship. And that is why there is a tendency to project an assumption that there is something else going on. Now, men can manipulate. They can lie. But generally speaking, it is not the problem that the man is not being straightforward. What happens more often is the man does not speak. Or that the man, when he speaks, is not believed to be giving the full picture. And so women, I ask you to trust your men and to believe them when they give you the presentation of what it is they are saying. And men, be careful to maintain that. You cannot maintain the relationship and the trust in the relationship if you are not straightforward. If you think that something is not worth sharing, don't avoid it. Just say, I don't think this is helpful to share. Women, the men are called to not overburden you or break you down. They are made to be more rough-hewn. They are made to carry weight in a different way. They are made to deal with battle. You are made to deal with beauty. And so, if they say, we do not believe this is useful to talk about, trust him. If you have reason from the law of God why you think it must be dealt with, all right, present that argument. But this idea of building the relationship by being careful to be straightforward and trusting in the communication of the one who is the leader. Be open and candid. Parents, be plain and open with your children. Make it easy for them to know what you want. One of the things that's difficult, and I am convicted in this myself, is the difficulty in making sure that you're playing clear with your children. It's a part of the investment. Expecting them to know what you want without investing the proper instruction so that they know what you want is one of the things that destroys the openness of a relationship. It makes it so that both parties are constantly frustrated. The parent is called to give teaching about what they want and to do it in a straightforward and plain way and to say why. Children, Listen carefully to your parents and trust that they are wiser than you. Ask them questions looking to understand their reasons, not looking to show them to be wrong. They know far more than you. And as a result, things that seem obvious to you are in reality a result of your naivete. The fact that you don't know a lot makes it so that things look simple. But the world is complex, and your parents know about the layers that are below the surface. Those who are in authority must be clear about what they expect. They must teach, rebuke, correct, and instruct in righteousness from the word. Puritan preaching is known as plain preaching. The Westminster Directory of Public Worship, pages 562 to 563 in your teal thick books, gives a list of the way that preaching is supposed to be done. It says it's supposed to be done painfully. I always snicker when I hear that part. Painful for whom? Yes. Both. It is to be painful in terms of taking pains on my part. And it is supposed to be painful in that it is a chastisement to your soul. Taking pains and giving chastisement in the word. 
Preaching is to be done plainly. In other words, clearly, with the goal of making things from the text understood, drawing out doctrine by good and clear reasoning, and applying the doctrine to particulars. Preaching is to be done faithfully, looking to the honor of Christ, and to bring others to honor Christ. So faithfully as a servant of Christ. Preaching is to be done wisely, not pulling any punches or causing unnecessary offense, but instead seeking to prevail upon the hearers, to prevail upon the hearts of the people. It's to be done gravely. It's to be done in a serious manner, seeking to be dignified in the calling, to avoid causing people to despise the ministry or despise the message. Preaching is to be done lovingly, in a way that makes it evident that the preacher is seeking the good of the people in preaching making it clear that he seeks the good of the people in order to help them so that they would listen to him as someone they trust. Preaching is to be done scripturally, or as it's referred to in the directory, as taught of God. It's teaching only what the preacher is persuaded is true from the scriptures alone. So every preacher, every father, every husband, every master, everyone should seek to act in a way so as to, in their position where they have strength, to be open with those who are under them in order to encourage them to be able to speak back plainly to them. Even kings ought to do this, so as to encourage their subjects to be loyal. Now, we as Christians, we have God on our side. And we might be afraid to be plain and to be clear, we might think that there are times when we are the ones who do not have the high ground. But we have God on our side. And if that is the case, we are called, even if everything of the flesh, every external object, every circumstance, looks as though we are in the weaker position, we have the stronger position. If we would but see the angel armies that are about us every moment, if we would but see the power of God and the reign of Christ, which makes it so that the whole world is being subdued to his law. If we would but see the leaven that is filling the lump and causing it to be a place filled with the knowledge of God, we would know that we always, everywhere, every moment, have the upper hand. The word of God does not return void, and so we ought to speak openly and plainly. We should be a candid people. It doesn't mean that we always say everything we think, but when we do speak, it's always what we think. And we should be looking for opportunity to be bold and clear and to speak the truth. Because that is how the fragrance of Christ is spread and dispersed throughout the world. At the same time, when you are open with others and they stab you in the heart, that helps you to know that those are a people who have broken the covenant, have betrayed, and cannot be relied upon. If there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness. And so we are called, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. 
Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. This call, the call to not be unequally yoked, is a call to avoid covenant, to avoid binding yourself to unbelievers. Why? Because you can't have a sharing in things between righteousness and lawlessness. You will either become lawless or they will become righteous. There is no communion, no koinonia, no fellowship between light and darkness. The light will be extinguished or the darkness will be dissipated. There is no accord between Christ and Belial. Christ has not made such an accord. He will make no accord. He will destroy, defeat, slaughter, smash the demons. The idols will not stand. He will tear them down. He is a king greater than Hezekiah or Josiah. Every idol will be torn down. And so there is no accord between Christ and Belial. The believer and the unbeliever are the seed of Christ or the seed of Satan, Belial. And so those that are under the covenant head, they cannot be united with each other. The covenant head makes holy all of the subjects underneath him. Every covenant institution, when it publicly aligns itself with Christ, becomes holy. And all of its parts, all of its members. And anyone that makes rebellion against that holiness and will not subject itself to the rule of the house, the rule of the church, the rule of the state, is to be cast out. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. The temple of God requires perfect, pure, holy worship. Idols must be destroyed. When idols are brought into temple, it is an abomination. They must be destroyed. The worship of the holy God taken to idols is an abomination. And so we see, for example, efforts by various people to have the worship of Yahweh on the high places. God forbade it. He said not to do it. Taking worship outside of the context to do it differently than God has commanded is a violation of the holiness we're called to. We are told in Leviticus 26, verse 11, God says, I will dwell in them, in His people, and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, does that remind you of the garden? That God dwelt with Adam and Eve, and He walked with them in the cool of the day. The temple, the tabernacle, are supposed to be reminders of the garden. When you look at the rebuilding of the temple, there are wooden panels where you have trees and buds and open flowers carved in. What is that about? It's about reminding of the garden. 
The symbolism of the temple is to remind us of the sea and the land and the sky, and it reminds us of the mountain garden. And this idea of the temple, that the whole garden is to fill the earth, that there's a return to this relationship, being in the garden with God, and the church goes out, and now the temple is spreading to fill the earth. So the garden is filling the earth. The garden is filling the earth, and the garden is being matured into city. So the garden city covers the earth, compactly built, brothers dwelling together. The knowledge of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea broadly and deeply. We are not to unite ourselves together with unbelievers to be fellowshipping with them, to be co-belligerent with them. They are not fighting the same war. We are fighting a different war. It is a spiritual war. They may operate in a way that's useful to us, but do not think that makes you allies. Yoking occurs between individuals as friends. You think about the scriptures have covenanted friendships. Jonathan and David are an example of that. Covenanted friendship is something where you make a particular agreement to care for somebody, to be careful about their concerns, to work with them. It's a sort of partnership in something. It involves ongoing labors. And you should be careful who you covenant with in friendship. In addition to that, it is possible in the formation of a business between individuals to form a partnership where you commit yourself to labors. And if you commit yourself to labors and not just giving money to something that they might serve you and give you a return back, if you commit yourself to labors, then what you are doing is you are committing yourself, yoking yourself to an unbeliever. Committing yourself to ongoing labor with, beside, standing beside as a partner an unbeliever. And if you were to enter a position where you were in destitution and you were willing, historically this has been common, we think of it as almost unthinkable in our age, but people volunteering to become slaves in order to have some sort of supply, to have room and board in exchange for service. If you were to volunteer yourself as a slave to an unbeliever, you would be yoking yourself to them. And so you would rather go and seek the help of a brother and seek to serve a brother. These are the types of things that an individual can do to yoke themselves in covenant as an individual. Furthermore, in a household, you can marry an unbeliever. There is nothing so destructive to a Christian man as to marry an unbelieving wife. And there is nothing so destructive to a believing woman as to marry an unbelieving husband. It could take a promising life and shipwreck it. On the other side, a believing husband and believing wife together are the most glorious team ever created. God has designed that relationship and made it so that the believing husband and the believing wife together work together toward the goal are designed as man and woman to function, to help each other's weaknesses and advance each other's strengths. Children who reject the authority of the parents and throw off obligation to uphold Christian rules in the home violate the household covenant. And we find, for example, in the Old Testament, the principle that a totally rebellious son who is unwilling to take correction 
is to be punished by the civil magistrate, even to the point of death. The danger of somebody who is throwing off all authority, unwilling to take correction, that is the kind of person that results in a total disorder in society. We have a society that's filled with it right now, all the mass looting, all the various things, the undisciplined, the lack of discipline that we see in our society, the open sodomy, the baby killing, all of the things that are just going on throughout our society and just part of the everyday life that goes on. That is a manifestation of extreme lack of self-control. There are so many monsters, sociopaths, psychopaths, that are going around and committing great wickedness, idolatry, sodomy, baby killing, rebellion, cursing of authorities, blaspheming God in the streets. These things are public and common. They occur in discussions and comedy shows. They generate laughter. And so there is wickedness that is manifest from a total lack of discipline in our social order. The absence of holding children accountable results in an indulgence that is extreme. And the university system has become essentially a grand debauch where we send off people to have a capstone in their wickedness. They are taught to tear down the things that are good and encouraged in all sorts of promiscuity. The household is a place where we are called to maintain holiness, to train up children in the way that they should go. And you should be careful what household servants or servants with authority that you might appoint as you have means, and to make sure that as you give authority and management and trust into your homes, that what you do is you carefully give authority to believers. The church, when you join a local church, you covenant into it and you participate in its sins and you participate in its ministry. You receive blessings when it is serving God rightly and serving people rightly. You receive curses for its idolatry and its unholiness, which is why maintaining the discipline of a church is so important. A doctrine must be maintained. And the worship helps to teach the doctrine. God has designed the worship of God to be something that teaches the doctrine. And if the worship is not maintained, the doctrine will soon be corrupted. If the doctrine is corrupted, the worship will soon be corrupted. And the government of the church is to maintain the worship and the doctrine. And if the government is corrupted, the guardians, the watchers, soon become incapable of guarding the doctrine and the worship. Those three marks of the church must be maintained. Members who display themselves to have rejected the covenant must be removed by discipline. Officers who show themselves unqualified must be removed. We should be careful about the process of admitting people to the table, careful about ordaining people, and then we must seek to have relationship with other churches. It is the duty of local churches to seek to unite with other local churches, to form 
presbyteries, to form joint courts, to have a covenanted relationship. But if you join a presbytery in association by covenant wrongly, you participate in their sins. You participate in their covenant curses. And so union in covenant, when you form a presbytery, you are one church. What we find is the basis of the the texts where this is displayed. First, in the Old Testament, you have the idea of a shared church across the land of Israel with courts, one elder per ten, one elder per fifty, one elder per hundred, one elder per thousand. And these elders have courts. They are courts of appeal to be able to deal with issues as you go to the broader area. That is one church. We see the church at Jerusalem, which has thousands of members and therefore had multiple congregations. They had over a hundred officers to begin with. If they rotated in a preaching schedule, they would have each gotten to preach if they had morning and evening worship, and three of them spoke every time. It would have been months between each time each one got to speak. This is not what happened. There were multiple congregations in Jerusalem with the thousands of members. In Ephesus, we see thousands of members and we see the calling of elders, many elders. And so in Ephesus, you have multiple churches. They are called a single church in Jerusalem. They're called a church at Ephesus. These are two examples of places where multiple local churches are united into a single church, which is a regional church, what we would call a presbytery. And the council at Jerusalem acted for the church throughout the world. And so we have a synod or a general assembly where the whole church is represented there. When you have shared courts, you are a church together. And you are covenanted together. And you participate in each other's blessings and each other's curses. The point of a higher court, of a broader court, is to deal with discipline and to maintain a covenanted uniformity throughout the churches. To covenant, to uphold the doctrine, uphold the worship, and uphold the government. So that there is uniformity, a sameness of form. So we are not to be yoked together. As a result, what is the call that the Apostle gives? He says, if you're in a church where the gospel is compromised, where your government is wicked, where the worship is idolatrous, come out from among them and be ye separate. If you have control by the godly, reform and let them leave. Discipline and let them be the ones sitting under curse and be called to repentance. Do not be unholy. Do not mix righteousness with lawlessness. Do not mix light with darkness. Maintain proper boundaries. Maintain proper differentiation. Be holy. Now whenever you preach about holiness, the negativity takes emphasis in people's minds. And it always sounds hateful. And that's because the righteous are called to hate wickedness. It is hateful. It's hateful of wickedness. It is not necessarily hateful of those that you're separate from, though. The only loving thing to do to a person who's in unrepentant public sin is to separate from them. That's an act of love. The law of God teaches us what love is, and love is obedience to the law. And so if we love a person, we will apply the law to them. There's a hatred of wickedness, and we are called to love our enemies. 
At the same time, that love is not unchanging. If someone does not repent, if they do not believe, on the day of judgment, the resurrection, they will be in hell. At the moment of death, they will go to torment. And as soon as we know who those people are, we will no longer love them. We will no longer have love toward them. We will not be seeking their good. We will join in the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ with a righteous hatred of all of the wicked. God hates the wicked. Psalm 5.5 And we, on the day of judgment, will know who they are, and we will hate them too. Now, you know that we are wicked. We are counted as innocent in Christ, and we are counted as righteous in Christ. And so we deserve the same thing, but we have been given mercy. But we should not be afraid to say that it is the duty of the righteous to hate the wicked. We know that we are commanded to love everyone in this world except for those that has been revealed or reprobate, namely false prophets. And so as a result, we are accustomed to making sure to talk about the idea of the general duty of love, and we should. We should love our neighbor as ourselves and seek to make them brothers. But we know that we are called to hate wickedness. Now, the other thing that fails to be emphasized and fails to be as memorable because the skill of preachers fails is the love of what is good. There is a beauty of what is good. A beauty to children being raised as holy seed. A beauty to children who are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. To women that are protected by men who are willing to take on burdens to provide, protect, build a frame, guard them. There is a beauty there. There is a beauty to a church in good order that elders bear burdens for, where elders are willing to sacrifice and to suffer in order to maintain the church. There is a beauty when deacons bless and do works of mercy, when love is manifest, when the fruits of the Spirit are shown, when there is joy, when there is kindness, when there is patience, when there is gentleness. There is a beauty there. It is a manifestation of the Lord's garden, where the fruits are not merely fruits that taste sweet, but they are fruits that are beautiful to behold, fruits that are beautiful in action, fruits that are beautiful in building affection, fruits that cause relationship to be binding and powerful. There is a holiness that is not merely negative. There is a holiness to focus us on the goal and to focus on the love of each other. To not promiscuously give out our affections, time, and attention to anybody and everybody, but to focus on loving and caring for each other. It's a beautiful thing to see a man forsake all women except for his wife and to give attention to her and to bless her and to wash her with the word and to see her blessed and flourish under his care. There is a beauty to that. There is a beauty when church members focus on seeking to build relationship with each other and break bread from house to house. There is only so much time. There is only so much bread. There are only so much that we can carry. There's so many relationships that we could have and the relationships that we must focus on are the covenant relationships. There is a positive beauty there. And when we try to focus on the relationships that we should, we are always going to do it less beautifully than we ought. 
We will come into each other's homes and the guests will offend the host and the host will offend the guest. There are thorns and thistles, there is strife, and there is shortness to life. And so we have to strive to overcome alienation. We have to strive to build relationship. You have to host at cost to yourself. And you have to host knowing that people will enter your home and offend you. And you overlook it. Because you have a position of strength. You're the host. And when you go into other people's homes and you receive hospitality from them at their expense, at their blessing, and they offend you, you bear with it. Because you have strength. You're the one receiving the blessing. You're the one receiving the tribute. You're the one being served. So from a position of strength, you can overlook it. You can be open and plain. If you can't overlook it, you can bring the offense and seek to resolve it. And so holiness is not only about keeping away, keeping away, keeping away. It is about cultivating. It's keeping away in order to keep pure. It's keeping away in order to see flourishing. It's keeping out those who would trample the garden, keeping out the foxes that would destroy the tender vines. It is about guarding the beautiful garden. I do not know how to explain. I do not know how to word well enough the positive beauty. And that is the failing of me and other preachers. So though I labor, if I spend twice as much time trying to manifest the positive beauty, the thing that's more shocking is the negative side of holiness. And so holiness always feels like it's dominated by the separation. But the separation is for the goal. The separation is for the garden. The separation is for the fruit. I wish, I pray, that God would give me more skill that I could express the beauty more clearly. But as that life is lived, as holiness is manifest, as righteousness is shown, the beauty becomes evident and the beauty of godly womanhood and of godly childhood and godly fathers, godly officers working together self-sacrificially, the beauty of that is powerful to show the city on a hill to be a light that draws The language of the Song of Solomon is meant to manifest that beauty in terms of holy relationship. We live in a sex-obsessed world that thinks if only we had all restraints removed, then we could all be happy. All the restraints have been removed and the world is miserable. The beauty, the joy, the glory is in having the restraints and in the things being in their proper place. Beauty is about things being fitting and orderly. The order, the order is the beauty. And so a beautiful soul is a rightly ordered soul. A beautiful home is a rightly ordered home. A beautiful church is a rightly ordered church. A beautiful nation is a rightly ordered nation.
The law of God, as you meditate upon it, is a system of beauty. It shows us the way things ought to be. It shows us the outlines, the structure, the blueprints that are to be applied. And the manifestation of those things, of what the law of God teaches, is a manifestation of beauty into the world. And so the extent to which we manifest the maturity of what has been commanded in the Word of God, we will see that beauty manifest. We will see the glory of God, the beauty of the temple of God as it's constructed. I will dwell in them and walk among them. We will see the glory of God in our midst by seeing His Word dwelling richly in us and manifesting fruits of the Spirit, obedience to His law. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Proper loyalty will be manifest. Proper order of relationship. Christ will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the children to the fathers. Right affections. Verse 17, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. This is from Isaiah and Ezekiel. Come out from among them. There is a desire to maintain relationship with others simply by spending time with them. The more time, the more history we have with people, the more we want to keep going with them. And we have to not allow simple history to be the basis of loyalty. At the same time, it is as time goes on, we find things out about people that we don't like, and there's a fractiousness that can occur. And we are called in holiness not only to separate from the ungodly, but we are called to continue to become closer with the godly, even as we see their weaknesses. And oh, how many weaknesses there are. The more you get to know someone, the more you will find the things that are disappointing about them. And the glory of Christian holiness is in the peaceableness, the love, the care, the bearing with each other, the lifting each other up, the carrying burdens for each other, the willingness to suffer offenses by each other, to seek each other's good at great cost and expense. Relationships extend out not only to the church but to the state. And so covenants between civil spheres, whether they be alliances or a federal union, are ungodly if they are between Christian governments and non-Christian governments. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament. This is a warning given over and over and over again. Don't put your trust in Egypt or Assyria or any place. Do not ally yourself with the wicked. And so, in the civil sphere, this applies as well. There is a category called a legal person. And actually, let me explain that right after verse 18. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. If we're going to be in the household of God, we are not to be in the household of false gods. We need to realize that our loyalties belong to God. The Isaiah text that this is brought out of says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar. This idea of come out, be separate, rejoin. We see in Exodus 
You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. We are called to hate wickedness. We are called to separate from it. We are called to love righteousness. We are called to unite with it. Freedom is freedom to do what is good. God called his people out of Egypt in order to separate them so that they could do good. Covenants make individuals holy and they can make legal persons holy. Legal persons cannot, can contract. They can possess property. <coughs> Partnerships are legal persons. And God has made legal persons that are called covenant institutions. They are legal persons. Individuals are legal persons, but they're also ontological persons. That means in their being, they are persons, but they also are under law counted as persons. A household is a person. A church is a person. A state is a person. What does that mean? That means they are legally responsible. They can have blessings and curses befall them. They can own property. When a legal person is holy, all of its parts, all of its members become holy. This does not mean that all of the parts are saved, but it does mean that in a legal and external way, the parts are to be recognized as devoted to God. That does not mean they will be perfectly used in devotion to God. The instruments of the temple were devoted to God. They were holy. And Nebuchadnezzar took them out of the temple. And then his grandson drank from them to the gods of gold and silver. That was not a holy use. That was an unholy use. So just because a thing is externally holy does not mean it will always be used for a holy end. Just because a thing is externally holy does not mean that it is saved. But the misuse of the parts is more wicked than before the devotion by an external rite. Before some member is made holy by a covenant arrangement with a believer, they have less guilt and when they are made holy by covenant arrangement, they profane that which has been externally declared to be set apart for God. And the betrayal of the covenant makes the party that has betrayed the covenant more guilty. Think about this. This is the same in terms of the difference between fornication before marriage versus adultery committed after marriage. Both are the same sin in action, but one is made more wicked because it is a violation of a covenant. Now, chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Filthiness that is external action and filthiness that is thought. We are called to perfect holiness and make ourselves totally devoted to the purpose of the glory of God in thought, word, and deed. That is the positive peace. That is what I'm trying to figure out, how to display its glory and its beauty. And as we understand that more, as we understand the positive of it more, it's greater. So here's what I want you to think about. All over the church, everybody wants to focus on the minimum possible point of union. All throughout, everyone wants to call as many people as possible Christian as many people as possible being eligible to come into a church. And that broadness, that shallowness, 
makes the glory of God less visible, less on display, less clear. By maintaining a standard and requiring knowledge and requiring that officers have agreement with knowledge, you're requiring deepening. You're requiring that more is able to be put on display. That the church is able to teach more clearly, more plainly, to be able to say the things that would offend many. And so in clearly teaching more truth, more of the glory of God is on display. The way we make the beauty of God more plain is by maturing and by having more truth explained. Because the more deeply you understand the things of God, the more glorious God appears. The more shallow your understanding, the less of his glory you behold. And so if the church is committed to pressing on, advancing, maintaining what's already been gained, then that witness to the positive glory is stronger. But it also requires that no be said more often. And we do not like to say no. We do not like the negative side of holiness. We do not like judging. It is the cardinal sin in America to judge. But you cannot be holy if you do not judge. You cannot be separate if you do not exclude. You cannot be united if you do not define what you are united around. Positive affirmation and negative exclusion are both necessary. And the call to holiness is a call to both. To focus on the goal, to exclude other goals, to have those that are committed to the goal, to exclude those that are not. We are to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. Perfecting holiness is making oneself totally devoted to the purpose of the glory of God in thought, word, and deed. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord is perfecting holiness in wisdom. The fear of the Lord starts with salvation and it ends with fearing his chastisement. And it ends even further with being afraid to not get rewards. Okay, so you start at the very beginning, you realize, I'm worried about hell. You start to fear God there. You become saved and you're no longer focused on fearing hell. You start to fear the chastisement of God. You start to become mature and you go, I want to get more reward. The wiser you are, the more you are concerned to get what is good. The more foolish you are, the more you are worried about punishment, principally. And so the spectrum is, as you're matured, you begin to focus on pressing on to the goal, to the prize. Holiness allows us to be focused on the prize corporately and to give that example to others. In churches that are immature, that do not have much unity, what you find is very few people have any idea what they're supposed to be doing. The more mature the church is, the more clear the church is, the more pure the church is, the more it is clear what everybody's role is, what the positive work looks like, how we row together, where we're rowing. So holiness is about defining the goal, and about defining who is working on the goal, and righteousness helps us to judge the particular steps, the choices All right. Other comments, questions, or objections? And I also, I failed to ask about comments, questions, and objections. I think Mr. I, you sent me something about that, I think. I failed to do that this morning. So if there's any comments, questions, or objections from the morning teaching or from this teaching now, please uh, bring them up now.